we did this big collaboration with Wiz Khalifa and this brand called Pleasures. Gotta be perfect. And we sent it over there and it was terrible. It shit the bed. Wasn't as fast as they said it was gonna be. The quality wasn't there. Our fabric was stuck there. And so the brand's pissed at me because I completely overpromised and underdelivered. Wiz's manager's pissed. The factory's like holding our fabric hostage or whatever. I had to make this right. To get ourselves out of this scenario, I cashed out my entire life savings and used it to pay an entirely different new manufacturer to rush complete it. I had to. So for the longest time, I mean, I was just like, dude, did I just fuck up here like my entire life? We're now working with that brand again, like five years later. They're like, you did the right thing. But I questioned that decision. I literally just put my life in jeopardy to do this. But out of that extreme pain, a cornucopia of learnings, right? But fuck, man, no pain, no gain. Tape machines are complicated devices used to record sound. The tape itself consists of a thin layer of mylar or a similar material coated with iron oxide. When the tape passes through the head of a tape machine, it polarizes the oxide particles and effectively captures the audio signal on the tape. For decades, the design and use of these machines to create musical recordings was so complex and difficult that it required engineers to operate them. In musical recording studios like Abbey Road, the famous Beatles studio, the sound engineers and technicians actually wore white lab coats. They were scientists. The rest of the infrastructure to make a record was just as complicated. Mixing and processing recorded audio required massive multi-channel mixing consoles, many of which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's no surprise that making a record used to require teams and teams of people, and it cost millions of dollars in some cases. But in 2021, it's easy to take it for granted that we can all just make studio-quality recordings using software called a DAW, or a Digital Audio Workstation. Ableton Live, Fruity Loops, Pro Tools, Logic Pro, there are a bunch of DAWs, and they sound great. And some of them are even free. Over a period of two decades, aided by the advent of personal computing, making records went from being a distant dream of the privileged few to being accessible to anyone with a computer. Andrew Wyatt, CEO of Kala, believes that this same phenomenon is about to happen with fashion. Making clothes is complicated. You have to know manufacturers, you have to source raw materials and textiles, it's expensive. Becoming a fashion designer is as difficult today as becoming a recording artist was in the 70s. But Kala is attempting to collapse that entire fashion designing and manufacturing process into a single, beautiful, usable interface. Kala is to fashion like a DAW is to music. It's a hard problem, and Andrew has been at it since 2016. Andrew, welcome. Dude, so good to see you. I love this. 
Thanks for having me. Heck yeah. Thank you for coming. I've been so excited about Kala for so long. I, I sat down to talk with him about his product strategy, the intersection of fashion and technology, and how to even start solving such a gnarly problem. I'm Jack Conti, CEO and co-founder of Patreon, and this is the Creator Economy Podcast. And the usual disclaimer here, I'm a proud investor in Kala. What is Kala? What the heck are you building? And what do you see that other people don't see yet? So when you look at fashion, it's historically been this like very insular industry. Like you have to break in either via, you know, knowing someone who owns a factory or having tons of money or, you know, coming up through one of the premier fashion schools or something like that. And so what we've done is try to be that great democratizing force by creating an interface that's so simple, so easy to use, that you can just communicate about what you want in a very like visual and literal way. So upload a photo that you take on the street of a pattern on the ground or something and add a comment and say, I like this, but be cool if it was in blue. So it's about creating these tools that abstract away the complexity of getting that sort of creative vision out. The overall philosophy, though, is like, It has to be, from a user perspective, this super simple, easy tool to get that across. So as a user, what does Kala allow me to do? Kala allows you to create any kind of fashion or fashion tangential product and sell it to your audience. What are people designing? I mean, (laughs) the funny thing that just came to my mind is like a jockstrap was something that someone's doing recently. (laughs) Uh, You know, so that's one end of the scale. On the other end of the scale, you know, sunglasses, eyewear, um, you know, we do tons of socks, backpacks. Really, like, what's what's cool is that I think individuals are so multidimensional now that, you know, people aren't satisfied just making a screen printed T-shirt. They want to really bring that, like, they want to take that same level of specificity and quality to everything that they put out to their audience. And so we're trying to build the, the best vehicle for doing that. What have you learned in the last couple years about what makes the combo of tech and fashion difficult? Within the lifespan of Kala, fashion and tech were polar opposites. So it was a very well, you know, very closely held belief within fashion that if something is techy, it's the furthest possible away from being luxury fashion craftsmanship. So it, it was almost like kitschy to be It's like the optimized. antithesis of fashion is tech. Exactly. And what's happened like very recently is now all of a sudden, and the pandemic definitely pushed this forward, now all of a sudden you can't do a fashion runway show, so people are doing them in VR. People are doing, um, you know, doing 3D designs and renders and things like that. Balenciaga, which is one of the biggest fashion houses, just did a collaboration with Fortnite. And now all of a sudden, we're in the midst of this dramatic shift where all of a sudden fashion's realizing that if we're going to survive, we got to embrace tech, actually. And so I think if you kind of zoom that back out to why you don't see much with fashion and tech is that people from fashion wouldn't co-sign it. And so it was hard to get tech investment for a company because no one from fashion would co-sign it because they would just be like, this is not fashion. Like, not cool. don't even try. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of what's, what's happened. But what's amazing is that now 
we are seeing this openness and excitement around technology. Now, it is still excitement around like the crazy forward-facing 3D, AR, VR, fancy drones down the runway type stuff. But the opportunity for Kala is to do the non-sexy, boring shit that is important for fashion. Back office operations, supply chain, logistics. That's still done over WhatsApp and emails and just like brute force. And so we're applying tech to an area where there's not a lot of focus in fashion. And that's why it's giving us this this pretty big advantage. And that makes tons of sense. But all that has happened in the last 18 months, two years, basically since coronavirus Absolutely. took over. Yep. Um, but you started Cala when? 2016. 2016. <laughs> so you've been working on this for five years. Yes. How did you get started? How did you find your, like, did you have a business plan or did you just kind of go, go, go? I'm, I'm curious where... Do you know what I mean? Like how, how how strategic was it at the beginning? Not incredibly. So basically, it was like I see I see there's something here, like and and I helped out um, another fashion brand called Frida Salvador, and they do footwear primarily. Um, and so I just spent time with them for a couple of weeks and just like hearing about their pain points and and for them like l- like negotiating with carriers and importing the product from Portugal where it was made was just this huge headache. And so it was kind of like, or like I had that experience and like, who can you guys introduce me to that's also in this world? And so they introduced me to Janessa Leone, who's an actual like fashion brand in LA. And so I kind of just like kept follow, like chasing the scent of like, I think there's something here. Let me talk to more people. And it just, that I kind of built conviction via Customers. Customers, exactly. Customer by customer is what you're describing. Absolutely. Which I l- freaking love that because at the end of the day, I feel like the companies that are, are the most customer-centric, obsessed with customers, solving very clear customer problems that are real problems in the world. Absolutely. As opposed to solving like industry and market size problems and you know, it's 100%. like focus on the customer. And it sounds like that was your that was your approach. It was like, okay, here's a person that's having a very clear problem that I can help solve. Absolutely. Oh, here's another person who's having a, a similar problem. I'm gonna you know, repackage what I've already done to help solve that problem too. That just feels like a really yeah I like that way of building and and the big the big revelation actually came on that LA trip and so it was like the summer of 2016 and um, this woman Janessa Leone I was meeting with her and then I got connected to this other woman who she worked for a stylist for uh, Kim Kardashian and so started hearing about this like the stylist and what the stylist role is Obviously, it's, you know, dressing celebrities. Um, but then that sort of started opening the world to me of influencers, celebrities, taste making. And so in addition to already kind of seeing like the operational issues in fashion, that's where the idea started building for me around brands are people, not Gucci or Louis Vuitton or, or something like that. And so that's where I started getting really excited about like, oh, wow, now all of a sudden social media has democratized reach. And so instead of doing a, you know, $5 million billboard campaign on Sunset Boulevard, you post a photo wearing a shirt and now everybody wants the shirt. And the, the like COO of Rag and Bone at the time, 
just kind of like, you know, put the the nail on the head for me when he was like, we still do our campaigns, you know, we still spend the money, and it kind of moves the needle. But if Kendall Jenner wears a pair of our jeans, we can't keep it in stock for the whole year. Holy shit. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, can you give us a sense of like, who were you serving proportionally? How much of the business was individual creators versus solving supply chain issues for for existing retail businesses? And how do you kind of think about that product strategy and that split between those two different customer bases? Because it seems like they're very different customer types. Absolutely. There's a chicken or egg problem when it comes to solving something like this in that we felt to have a good, a great solution and a great experience, it couldn't just be here's a design and collaboration tool. It needed to be, here's a design and collaboration tool, press a button, and you can get it made. So we needed the manufacturers. And to get manufacturers on board, you know, they laughed at me when I was, you know, I basically went to LA, tried to meet a bunch of them. And they're like, oh, well, who are your customers? Well, I don't have customers yet because I need to, you know, get manufacturers first. And they're just like, get out of here. So then it's like we this had the classic kind of, marketplace problem. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, we had there's, to start in the beginning when there's zero liquidity on either side, neither party is attracted to the marketplace, and so it's very hard to grow the customer base. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's an absolute nightmare. And that's where we spent a lot of the early days just slowly chipping our way at it. And so the the beginning of the business was really focused on, you know, my dream would have been to like work with a big creator then. But like their their agent wouldn't even respond to an email. So so we started with like really small creators, really small fashion brands, use that to kind of get in with some bigger and better manufacturers. And then we stopped working with any manufacturers that had a website and we kind of got into like the underworld of LA manufacturing that where you can only contact them via like email and phone. And then eventually we started manufacturing internationally, which then enabled us to start working with, you know, even bigger folks. And so um, it was kind of just a, this mix at the beginning, but then in like 2019, we started um, having enough credibility that we were starting to break into the talent agencies. And so for, for a large portion of 2019 and 2020, that was kind of our exclusive focus. And if you talked to me then, I was like, we're all in on creators. Um, we're building the absolute best platform for people that want to launch a brand, people that are graduating from merch into like lifestyle brand and things like that. And about the end of 2020, I just had this like epiphany, which was like all of the best creator brands that we were working with were now just brands. And so realizing that like that's just a brand that has needs that are similar to like other fashion brands and the technology that we've built to make that a really streamlined experience is hugely valuable to existing fashion brands that want to streamline their experience or that just laid off half their team because you know of of what happened in 2020. And so starting like this year, we really f- kind of like abstracted away a bit of like who is Cala built for to just being like it's built for people that want to make really high quality fashion products and sell them to their customers in a streamlined and cost-efficient and effective way. Um, And so to kind of go all the way back to your question, right now it's it's actually, you know, we're shifting even a bit more from specific creators 
to existing brands just because we're having a lot of success onboarding the existing brands to the platform. But if there's a creator that, you know, and we're working with a really, really cool one um, called, the brand's called Almost Friday. And, you know, it's my favorite prototype of of, of a customer because they had success with merch. They'd understood what it takes to do it and to promote and sell. Now they're being able to just like make all their dreams from a product perspective come true via the platform. Can you explain this transition that creators go through from thinking of it as merch to thinking of it as a lifestyle brand? We kind of passed over that quickly, but that was one of the biggest aha moments for me with Kala. So what's happened is like merch has become so optimized that it's lost the soul and the body and the things that make it exciting. Now, if you sign an agreement with Universal, merch is built into the contract. And so it's like it's become this like sterile, like generic slap a label on it, you know, type deal. And the consumers at the same time are also on social. They now have more choice and visibility into what's cool and what's not than anyone else. And so what we're seeing is and, and I'll give credit to Kanye. Kanye really led the charge on this, which is like, he's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not, I'm not putting out this, this type of stuff. Like, I want every single thing that comes in contact. Well, like, anytime someone comes in contact with something that is Kanye West derived, it is at this certain level of quality. And so he basically started just manufacturing his own merch. You when can get when somebody, you say he started manufacturing his own merch, did he... Did he buy manufacturers? What (laughs) what do you mean he manufactured his own merch? What is that? Like, what did he have to do? So he started trying to get into fashion for like like 15 years. And so he talks about how he and Virgil Abloh, who's now the artistic director at Louis Vuitton, and Heron Preston, who now has his own brand, and Matthew Williams, they all used to be part of this like collective called Ben Trill. And they were doing merch back then. And uh, he and Virgil wanted to get into fashion, and no one would take him seriously. And so they started getting really good at Photoshopping. And so they just Photoshop whatever they were trying to design. And, and then eventually they kept showing it to enough people, and eventually someone was like, hey, you can, uh, you can do this. This interview with Andrew took place before the tragic passing of Virgil, who I did not know of before this interview. But after reading a bit about him, it became clear to me that he was a true visionary who was deeply loved and respected by so many people. I believe the story goes that Kanye was at a dinner or something and was telling uh, Tommy Hilfiger about his vision and what he was trying to do and all this stuff. And Tommy basically gifted him his like one of his top production people, this woman named Mary. And and so she had relationships to all the factories, had all of the connections, and started, you know, kind of introducing him to that world of of actually like being able to like take those Photoshop renders and turn it into physical products. Wow. I did not know that story. Yep. What a win for content. Huge. <laughs> That's amazing. But I, I firmly believe, and I was talking to my friend last night about this, that Anyone who can articulate what they want, whether or not it's good, will likely be able to get it. Like, if you tell enough people, I want to do this, like, you're it's going to happen. And he just, like, brute forced it. And now he's, you know, a massive billionaire and it's crazy.
Andrew's point about knowing what you want has been such a key lesson, at least for me, over the last chapter of my life. I don't know how your mind works, but the best way I can describe my own thoughts is that they're a bit like asteroids, orbiting around a core idea or a feeling. Not advancing, just circling, endlessly in a loop. That's what my brain feels like. But when I write, it's like strapping a rocket to those asteroids. And for the first time, the thoughts are launched forward sequentially. For me, writing uncurls circular thought patterns and propels my thinking forward linearly. It helps me bring definition to vague, uncertain desires, and it helps me crystallize those desires into clear goals. My band, Pomplamoose, for example, gets a ton of inbound requests all the time. People are constantly writing us, asking us to do things, and a lot of them are really cool things that I would love to do. But knowing exactly what we want as a band and taking the time to write that down and define it crisply has helped us say yes to the things that push us forward and no to the things that don't. Without that clear definition of what we want over the long term, it's hard to make any decisions at all over the short term. Let's talk about the shift to mobile for a second, because the decision to like build a mobile app is a big—it's a big decision. Big decision. Um, seems like if you're shifting to mobile, maybe part of the strategy was to simplify that design process and to make it not one click, but more of a fun, easy thing that somebody on TikTok could kind of do quickly. Was that part of the strategy in going to mobile? Is that where you're going? So what we've realized is that the way that top brands and creative directors work today, they're not sketching anymore. They have a team that sketches, but, and Kanye actually at his uh, Yeezy Design Studio has built these massive video walls that are hooked up to an app he has built. And so as he's just living life, he's constantly pushing images, and these images are going up in these video walls in the design studio, and the designers are getting inspired by that and sketching. That's so, so rad! Epic. So epic. Oh my god. And so what we realized is that, like, you know, the picture says a thousand words type thing is that we don't need to build an insane, highly optimized 3D design tool. We need to build something that makes it really simple to take a few different images, add the words around, like, how you want to make this unique to you and then push a button from there and then we sort of figure out in the back end how to actually get it made, what the pricing is and everything like that. And is that where this partner network of technical fashion yes. designers comes into play? Absolutely. Okay, so what you're trying to do is move upstream there. Exactly. You're trying to move essentially down market to a longer tail and reduce friction so that anybody can literally like take a couple pictures, describe what you want in a paragraph, and then something comes back to you that's kind of semi-realized. Exactly. And so... It's this combination of like watching the designers that were using the platform and and understanding like, oh, so much of it is actually about the taste and the inspiration, less about the fidelity and the accuracy of the sketch. Because at the end of the day, that sketch is getting chopped up into a pattern, which is then getting, you know, turned into fabric that's being cut up and sewn together. And so we had to kind of choose that point that we target. And more and more, I was just like, it's the highest level. It's like 
take a few photos and add comments, and, and, and that's how you design. So is, is on-demand manufacturing going to be the future of, of lifestyle brands? Can it be? Undoubtedly. That's the part that I'm so fucking excited about. Like, if, if I could just, like, stop what I'm doing today and just work on one thing, it would be the actual on-demand production element of this. So my vision for Callan for the future is actually on-demand production facilities that, similar to Amazon fulfillment centers, are, like, 90 miles away from everyone. And so, you know, basically enabling anyone to create a design, have it produced not in China and then shipped across the world and all this stuff, but actually be produced close to where the customer is. And if somebody else buys it in in, uh, North Carolina, then it's produced close to where that one is. That is the sustainable future for an industry that is second only to oil and gas as being the most detrimental to the environment. One of the issues with any kind of automation is the bottleneck of taking data around what you want the automation to do and getting it into a format that can be understood by the automation. And so part of what we're doing today is abstracting away the complexity of designing, but also ultimately standardizing it into the same format. And so... When a factory works with Kala, irregardless of what brand it is that, that you're actually working for, it's always in the same exact Kala format. Now, today, that's not at a sort of production-ready fidelity. Um, that's one of the big things that we'll be doing over the next year is actually uh, we are working in, in adding in 3D design. So every design, you'll get a 3D render of it, which has a corresponding pattern, which then is one step closer towards actually something that can go into a laser cutter, cut the fabric, and go into the sewing line. So, so we're kind of sequencing, um, but have been trying to like make sure that we like have a sound business model at each step of the sequencing so that we're not... Because what people in tech like to do a lot, I think, is like, like try to jump straight to the like bleeding edge technology. Would you end up with some a lot of really cool technology that like doesn't have a business model behind it? So what we've tried to do is like sequence it in a way where it's like we're not outpacing, we're not just trying to launch on-demand production tomorrow. Like we're trying to like get there in a fast manner, but in a w- manner that's like sensible and actually makes sense. So are the days of of walking into Nordstrom and buying a Tommy Hilfiger jacket, these sort of mass-produced, high-volume goods that everybody loves, over? Or are we going to still have those brands but also have these highly individualized, low-batch, high-quality goods in addition? So, yes, it's going to happen in fashion, firstly. I think if you talk to even, you know, anybody, even at some of the biggest brands, they see the future as smaller batch, uh, quicker turnaround, more responsive, if you will. Even at these big uh, brands? Yes, absolutely. Because what's happened is to kind of, you know, talk about some like nerdy operational uh, methodology here. So like if you have incredibly low volatility in demand, you build a pipeline. 
it's like you know the most efficient way to actually get something somewhere. You uh, make back your money over 30 years. If there's high volatility in demand, you want to make your supply chain as small as possible. You want to produce it on demand close to your customer. Um, and so what you're seeing with like Zara, so much of their um, innovation was that they can see a trend in the market and they can have it in stores in 30 days. So they shrunk their supply chain. And, and also, when you, when you have a 24-month-long supply chain, like Under Armour or something like that, you have to have so much inventory because you have to have inventory for that entire 24 months that it's on the water or in production. And so the total system inventory is way more than if you only need to produce 30 days worth because that's how long it takes you to get more. That is incredible. So essentially what's, what's having to happen is you know, communication cycles with the advent of, of connectivity tools like Twitter and Facebook, communication cycles are um, faster than they've ever been in human history. And because communication is so low friction and so fast, I think essentially what we're seeing is a pace of cultural evolution in memes, in style, in video production, you know, techniques, Absolutely. in creators. You know, culture is evolving faster. And it sounds like what you're saying is even these big brands like Zara are having to make physical changes to their supply chains to keep up with the pace of cultural change. Absolutely. And then the ones that aren't are dying or will die. And so going back to your Nordstrom example, which I think is a beautiful example of, of how things have changed, before social media, before Shopify – if you want clothing, you go to Nordstrom, and the Nordstrom buyers show you your choices. And this is why the buyers used to make a ton of money, because they were the tastemakers. They chose what you would see in the store, and someone walks in the store, and they need a shirt. That's what they buy. What social media has done is now everyone from their phone can sit front row at the Louis Vuitton show. They can see a million different options. And so because of that, and, and then there's influence through the creators. And so the tastes are just changing so quickly. And so what's incredible is the fastest growing Shopify store right now is Xi'an. And uh, it's, it's based in China. It passed Fashion Nova. And what they've done is incredible. Instead of optimizing for margin or things like that, they optimize for net new styles per month. Holy moly. So they want as many SKUs as possible within a month, and that's their top metric. But what they do is they only produce 300 units of everything. And so if a style pops off, they do a reorder, but they've optimized their entire supply chain around 300 unit orders. And so if they want to scale up and they're like, all right, this is really hitting this, you know, red, you know, tie right here top or whatever, uh, because someone wore it to Coachella, instead of then trying to get the factory to produce 300, they'll send out 10 300 unit orders to different factories in their network. Oh, my God. It's like it's like product growth techniques applied to physical goods because of e-commerce. And each one of those batches of 300 goods is essentially an A-B test against the other batches. And you see which ones rise to the top, and then you do the reorders. And the idea, I guess, between – it's like – it reminds me of the strategy of like, you know, growth teams will ship, you know, uh, will sometimes optimize for how many experiments per week yes, are you shipping. Exactly. And 
each one of those experiments is a hypothesis about which, what works best. And in this case, each one of these batches of physical goods is a hypothesis about, like, is this going to resonate with the market? Yes. And then you get a lot of data very quickly because you're optimizing for speed of data. Yeah, and absolutely. essentially what you get is a fashion brand that learns faster than any other fashion brand. Yes. And then can just take that data, take those learnings, and, and make uh, more things. Um, and then from the customer's perspective, they're winning because – the customers know if I see something, a trend, I go to Shein because they're going to have it faster than anyone. So then I can be part of that meme, part of that cultural moment, and I don't have to like go sh- look at a ton of different stores to try and find it. I know I can go to Shein. And so their retention's crazy, apparently. Um, and the company is not founded by fashion people. It's founded by engineers. And so it's, it's kind of a testament to the shift that's happening in fashion. And I talked to a lot of fashion brands, big and small, and there's a ton of focus on the Shein model. And what's interesting about the Shein model, one of their biggest innovations is that they set the price and they bid it out to their factory network. And so Cala independently kind of came to that same revelation on how the industry has to change in order to move towards this faster turnaround, more on-demand type model. I dug in a bit to the Sheehan model because I was both intrigued and terrified by the somewhat mechanical approach to fashion that Andrew is talking about. Fast fashion, it turns out, is nothing new. I didn't know about this, but in the 90s, Zara, the clothing brand, pioneered this concept of fast fashion, abandoning the idea of these long fashion seasons in favor of shorter, faster, all-year fashion cycles. They built a supply chain and a model that allowed them to deliver new styles to their stores every few weeks, which essentially hooked shoppers with consistent novelty. Some American brands jumped on the fast fashion bandwagon, brands like H&M and Forever 21. And over the first decade of the 2000s, fashion as an industry just got a bit faster. But in 2008 is when Chris Hsu founded Shein. Chris was not a fashion designer. His specialty was search engine optimization. Chris started by selling wedding dresses that he didn't even manufacture. It was kind of like a drop shipping company at first. But by 2014, he had decided to vertically integrate the company, design their own products, and build their own supply chains with a whole network of manufacturing partners. Within just a couple of years, they had put together a team upwards of 800 designers and prototypers to rapidly build new styles as quickly as possible. According to a Vox article, there are tens of thousands of styles on the site, and a thousand more are added every day. But they only manufacture a hundred of each item, which allows them to crank out a volume of styles without assuming a ton of inventory risk. When social media started to take off, they invested heavily in fashion influencer marketing, making their own haul videos at first, until a TikTok trend emerged where TikTokers would make their own haul videos specifically with Shein clothes and purchases. They now have over 22 million followers on Instagram and over 3 million followers on TikTok. The company had 10 billion in sales in 2020 and is now valued at over $30 billion, according to a report from CNN. 
To put that in perspective, Under Armour's market cap is $10 billion. Puma's is $17 billion. Abercrombie & Fitch, $2 billion. And Prada, $16 billion. Over the last few months, there's been a lot of backlash about Sheehan's output and practices. Everything ranging from accusations about worker exploitation to ripping off styles from fashion designers. But my main question regarding Sheehan's rise has less to do with them in particular or with fashion at all. And it has more to do with the concept of matching production cycles with the pace of cultural evolution. Something about me dies inside when I, when, I, when I think about that future. And I think it's because I am just such a humanist and I just deeply believe in the creativity of the human spirit. And well, I might be wrong about this, but I, I would guess that there will be standout designers who, despite the kind of volume of A-B testing happening at scale, even among big brands, which sounds like that's where it's going. Um, it sounds like, dis- dis- I, t- I think, despite that, we will still see individual visionaries who develop a following based on what they stand for and who they are and who are able to build products that represent what they stand for and who they are. Yep. And those products will resonate with the market just as much or more as the kind of market-tested products. I don't know. I I feel like that is likely to continue to be a track. Um, But, you know, I I don't know. It's hard to say. So I think it's the same reason that a lot of people will buy fast fashion T-shirts and pants and a Alexander Wang or Supreme jacket. Right. And so it's like they kind of live in these two worlds. And it's like the more basics, they're fine to get a deal on. They're fine for the price, the proximity, the the simplicity of it. But then the higher quality things are the testament to who they are and what they stand for and what they want to kind of show to their social network or social group. And so I think that you're exactly right that like there's always a call and response. And so anytime something becomes too optimized, the next thing is to be the opposite of that. Which is interesting, but where I think the opportunity lies is for, like, the route that we're talking about, the the optimized one, like, AI is going to design that. If you're optimizing for designs per month, humans become your limiting factor, right? Yeah. So, like, that's undoubtedly happening in channeling. But what I think is the unique opportunity is for the people to be able to tap into the infrastructure that's been built for the optimization to do things like more sustainable and on-demand production of their specific vision that people buy because it's their vision and it's not this like automated kind of like, you know, soulless type thing. That's where I think it comes kind of interesting. And almost like in fashion, sustainability is this like buzzword that like everyone's kind of beating to death. And I think like the the kind of next iteration of that is going to be this sort of like anti-optimization or like kind yes. of like like kind of back to artisan, I guess, a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see like what that is and what it looks like. Okay, before we wrap up, I want to dig into one thing you said two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking about the pain of company building, and one thing that I think. 
just people don't generally talk a lot about is specific examples of the shit. Um, I remember, for example, a time when I was getting like threats, uh, threat level tweets, probably about two or three a second oh, uh, my on, gosh. on Twitter for about 36 hours, maybe 48 hours, something like that. And like, I, I, the level, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> oh, I won't even get into why, but, um, but I would love to ask you why. Tell us about one of those moments on, on the couch uh, at 3 a.m. Uh, that was painful over the last five years building this business. What, what was one of the most painful parts of this journey so far? <sighs> oh, I had to like take a deep breath because even just thinking about this one is, is hard. So we were working uh, with this on-demand manufacturer in Alabama. This is like 2018 or 2017. And... I got the vision. Like I was like, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to work. And so we did this big collaboration with Wiz Khalifa and this brand called Pleasures. And I made the decision of like, hey, these guys said that they can on-demand produce, you know, so quick. So like I just, without properly vetting them, I sent the production there. Like I went and physically visited. I'm like, all right, this is going to work. You know, it's a tight timeline and it's, you know, it's got to be perfect. And we sent it over there, and it just it shit the bed. I mean, there it was terrible. And what, it, what do you mean? They, they so like the you know it wasn't as fast as they said it was going to be. The quality wasn't there. Um, you know, we we paid for a bunch of it, and then it, it's like they weren't refunding it afterwards, and so our fabric was stuck there. I mean, it was just like it. It, it was, and all the while the brand and this event happened. And so there's all these orders. There's like, you know, thousands of orders. And we're all, you know, I thought they were going to be able to just like crank them out as the, you know, because I think they said they can do a couple hundred a day or something like that. So people thought they were going to get their orders. People thought they were going to get their orders. The brand was like the brands and, and and, you know, all those people relying on us to get it done and and all this stuff. And so already there's the worst feeling ever. Like I... I was just, like, journaling to be able to, like, go to sleep at night because I was just, like, fucking freaking out so bad. And I was also, like, personally, and at this time, the company's two people, me and Dylan. Oh, God. So I'm doing all the customer support for all of these thousand orders. And so I'm just, like, I can't respond fast enough. And I'm setting expectations. I'm like, hey, uh, we're so sorry. It's going to be actually in two weeks. And surprisingly, a lot of people were like, oh, wow, you answered the email. Like, usually streetwear brands don't even answer, so, like, thank you so much. And so I had all these people that I'm just, like, you know, probably, like, 100 people that I'm, like, daily talking to that they're, like, trying to get their fucking sweatpants or whatever. So I'm doing that. The brand's pissed at me. I mean, obviously, because I completely overpromised and underdelivered. Wiz's manager's pissed. The factory's, like, holding our fabric hostage or whatever. We also, like, as a company, have, like, zero money left. And so I'm, like, trying to fundraise, too, at the same time. And I remember just being Wait, like, li- how mu- like mu- zero money left? How much money did like, you have? Literally, to to get ourselves out of this scenario, I cashed out my entire like life savings, um, and it which was not a ton, but I used all the money that I had in my like retirement accounts. I cleared out fucking everything, and used it to basically get the product from there, and then pay an entirely different new manuf- manufacturer to rush complete it. 
And I mean, massive process. And so like still was late, but like actually got it done despite the fact that like it looked like it was not going to happen at all. And, um, and like, and then I was like, holy fuck, like I have no money left. I had to make this right. I did make it right. Um, and we're now working on that brand again, like five years later. And, and one of the things that they messaged me, you know, they're pissed still, but like, they're like, you did the right thing. But out of that extreme pain came so a cornucopia of learnings, right? But fuck, man, no pain, no gain. It took me some years to recover from that. It was brutal. Fucking brutal. Kala is trying to solve a really hard problem. But it's a problem that I think will be solved. Just as the opportunity to become a recording musician is now widely accessible, I believe that the opportunity to become a fashion designer will be equally accessible to creative people everywhere. A huge thank you to everyone for listening and a huge thank you to Andrew for being on the podcast and telling us about your journey. At Patreon, we're actively recruiting the best product designers and engineers and builders in the industry. So if you want to help us build the future of the creator economy, please head over to patreon.com careers. And if you like this episode and you want to hear more, please check out previous episodes with guests Josh Constein, Lee Jin, and Alexis Ohanian. And of course, feel free to subscribe for future episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Huge thanks to the producers Dave King and Joe Smith, and also the Patreon team internally helping with this podcast. Brian, John, Kate, Nikhil, Sandeep, Veronica, and Will. Massive thanks to that crew for making this podcast happen. Okay, everybody, see you next week. Thank you for listening.